All right, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, this chapter is probably the most controversial chapter of the whole book of Revelation because this is the one place that says more about the millennium if there is indeed a literal millennium, more about the millennium in the whole Bible, this chapter. And what happens before the millennium, what happens during it, what happens after it, all of these are points of controversy. And especially in verse 4, when it says that John saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, and it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, that perhaps is the crucial part of this chapter and the whole book of Revelation in terms of chronology and future events. So we will delve into this in Revelation 20. In the previous chapter, Christ has returned. He has returned and he has destroyed his enemies, the beast and the false prophet also, and he's thrown them into the lake of fire. The one who remains of this pagan triad is the devil. But now in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to three, he is bound. Now, there are a couple of major issues that we need to raise in relation to Revelation 20. 
One is, if one is a believer in the Bible, believing the Bible to be the Word of God, there are four interpretations of the millennium that one could hold. The four interpretations. That's one of the issues, and I will explain those four views in just a moment. Another issue is many people, many commentators, when they come to the book of Revelation, they see it as completely allegorical, mythological, and fictitious. Uh, fictitious. And so because of that, they think everything said here has no basis in reality. Nothing actually will happen in the future. This is all in terms of religious fiction. That's all that it is. Well, we do not hold to that view. Later on, at the end of the study, I will emphasize and prove that there must be certain literal, real, factual events that will happen. This chapter happens to explain them in some ways, but other scriptures will explain that they are real and actual events, though one may come to the Bible and look at this as fictitious and mythological. It is not, and we'll see that. But now returning to one who believes in the Bible, the four interpretations. The one interpretation is known as post-millennialism. Post-millennialism sees from the first coming to the second coming of Christ, a period where the gospel spreads and conquers the world, or mostly conquers the world, and then Christ returns. That's the way they approach this chapter. The world improves, becomes more Christianized until it's nearly Christianized until the very end. Then Christ comes in his return. There's a day of judgment, there's a resurrection, and then there is eternity. That's post-millennialism. Christ comes after a, a good period, a long period, when the earth is Christianized. The other view is known as amillennialism. Amillennialism also looks at the millennium as having uh, occurred between the first coming and second comings of Christ. Amillennialism. The difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism is that amillennialism believes that the world is worsening. There's more and more evil, and the only one to, to deliver us from the evil is the personal, visible return of Christ. That is amillennialism. The world worsens and Christ returns. Then thirdly is the view known as dispensational premillennialism. They see that after the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and that millennium is for the purpose of allowing the people of Israel to reign on the earth, the believers among the people of Israel to reign upon the earth. The millennium is for the nation Israel, and especially the patriarchs and many of the Old Testament saints the millennium is for them. It's not for the church. The church really doesn't have much of a role in the millennium. That's their view. It's a literal millennium, but it is for Israel, not the church. And then we come to the fourth view, that is historic or classical premillennialism. This view mostly does take the, the view that the millennium is a literal thousand-year period, which is yet future, which takes place after the return of Christ. Um, however, its purpose is not for Israel, physical Israel, the nation Israel, but it is for the whole church, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Israel or from any other nation. 
the millennium is for them and for them to reign and rule for a thousand years. And then the day of the final day of judgment, the resurrection, and then eternity. And that is the view. The fourth view is the view that I will take here in this chapter. Now, let's go to chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. John again, as he says, and I saw, this introduces another vision. He's making a clear distinction that this is another vision compared to what he just saw in the previous chapter. So with this new vision, some people take it chronologically, but it does not necessarily have to be chronological. I think, though, in this case, there is validity to a chronological interpretation since the return of Christ was in the previous chapter and the millennium is described here. So we will take this chronologically. And I saw chronologically an angel coming down from heaven. This angel is unnamed. It may be the same angel as chapter 9 verse 1 who had also the key to the abyss. To the abyss he had and he allowed um, there to be uh, an, an exit from that abyss. Here too, he has power over the abyss, and, but in this case, he puts Satan there into the abyss. Some people take this angel to be Jesus Christ, who has, in Revelation chapters 1 and 2, spoken of how he has overcome death, and he has the key of death and of Hades, like chapter 1, verse 18. So, whoever this angel is, God has granted him, since he comes from heaven authority, power to exert over Satan. He has the key of the abyss. He has the authority, the ability to open and close the abyss. And he also has a great chain in his hand, a, a huge chain uh, symbolizing the fact that he has the power to overcome Satan. Now, Satan is invisible. He's a spirit. And angels are also spirits, ministering spirits. And a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So this is the case, but symbolically, metaphorically, it's being explained that he has authority and he has power to control what happens to the devil. Now, it says, of the abyss. The abyss, according to Luke 8.31, this is where demons are terrified of going. They are terrified of going to the abyss. Jude verse 6 also says that they are are bound up there because of their disobedience. These angels are bound up because of their disobedience. Here, this abyss is a temporary place, as we see in the rest of the chapter. The devil is placed there for the thousand years, and then after he's released for a short time to deceive the nations, then he's cast into the lake of fire. This abyss is not the same as the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the same as hell, or Gehenna, and that is the permanent destiny of all of the wicked angels and wicked people. That is the lake of fire. But the abyss is a temporary place of torment for the angels. Verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He bound him with his power and with his authority. He bound him and put him into the abyss for a thousand years. The devil is called by these various names. The dragon, because he is cruel, he's ferocious, 
the serpent of old, reminding us that the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis was the devil, and, and he was a very deceptive and sneaky serpent. He's called the devil. The devil means an accuser or a slanderer. He's also called Satan. These are a few of his major names. He's got other names, such as the evil one. Um, but here, these four major names are presented. Satan means one who um, is an adversary, an adversary, foe, or enemy of God and the people of God. Well, this one, who has all of these malicious characteristics and desires, he was overcome by the angel because God granted power to overcome him. This is indicative of the fact that God controls all things, and he even has power over Satan. Satan and God do not have equal power. It's not as though they have equal power and they win and lose the same number of wars. That's not the case at all. God has ultimate power, and we see by the end of this chapter, by the middle part of the chapter, verse 10, the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire because of the power of God. Well then, verse 3. And threw him into the abyss. The devil was thrown into the abyss and it was shut and it was sealed over him. Permanent for at least a thousand years. For the thousand year, he's not going to be able to escape. He's not able to escape. But why is he put into the abyss? What, what is the reason? It tells us in verse 3 the reason. So that he should not deceive the nation's any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Here we find that the reason for his binding is so that he does not deceive the nations any longer. Well, according to the post-millennium perspective, he doesn't deceive the nations any longer because the Christian church conquers the world. According to the amillennial view, he doesn't deceive the nations any longer because be between the first and second comings of Christ, the gospel goes to Gentile lands and Gentiles, many Gentiles believe the gospel. That's the sense in which the amillennial position takes this, that he doesn't deceive the nations any longer. But according to the pre-mill position, both the dispensational premillennial and the historic premillennial position, when it says he does not deceive the nations any longer, it means that during most of the thousand years, he will be bound up so that the only evil that's perpetrated on the earth is conducted by evil human actions, not the devil. That's the reason for this, because of the strong statement that he should not deceive the nations any longer. We also note in verse 3 that... Satan is characteristically a deceiver. He's characteristically a deceiver. In fact, when he's released, this is what he does in verse 8. He will come out to deceive the nations. And in verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. This is what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. He deceived Eve. Eve said so in Genesis 3.13. The serpent deceived me and I ate were Eve's words to God when God confronted her. He was a deceiver, a liar, a, a, a creature of guile from the very beginning. And this is what he does all the time. He's out and about, he and his demons, to deceive people. And he uses people, evil people, 
to perpetrate his deception. However, for a short time, or for some time, a thousand years, he will be bound up. But after that thousand years, he must be released for a short time. To close up the thousand years, God desires to release him in order to destroy him. You see here, for a thousand years, Satan will be bound, but evil will still exist because people, man, will perpetrate evil. But then after that thousand years, there will be some people who still will be deceived by Satan. And Satan does not change his character after a thousand years. He continues with his wicked deception and he deceives the nations. This is the reason that God does this. It reveals human character and it reveals the character of the devil. To manifest that, to highlight the fact that this is the case. And why judgment, eternal judgment, righteous judgment is justified by God. And that's what we find in verse 4. His eternal judgment, God's judgment. And I saw thrones, in the plural. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And judgment was given to them. It says that there are thrones, and judgment was given to them. It does not identify the, the, those who are inhabiting the throne, those who are sitting on the throne. It does not say so. However, from other scriptures we know that Jesus promised the twelve apostles in Matthew 19, 28, that they would judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus also promised the church in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, through the Apostle Paul, that we will judge the world, and we will judge angels, meaning the wicked angels. We'll judge wicked angels, and we will judge the world. Therefore, on the throne, on the various thrones, must be the church including the twelve apostles. And judgment was given to them. This is how we know that since it's in the plural, and judgment was given to them, meaning to us, it has to be God granting us the ability to judge. Because it's granted. God doesn't have to grant to Himself judgment. But He does grant it to us. Then he says in verse 4, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. He sees the souls of those who had been beheaded, who held the testimony of Jesus, the word of God, did not worship the beast, his image, and did not receive the mark. Of the beast. In this passage, this long description of them, there are a couple of ways to identify who these people are. Of course, he sees souls because the day of resurrection has not yet taken place. If the body was there, then he would not have used a word such as souls necessarily. So he says souls because the body awaits, the physical body, the resurrected body awaits, which will take place at the end of chapter 4 and in chapter, I'm sorry, in, at the end of verse 4 and in verse 5, there will be a resurrection. So, he sees these souls. Now, are, are there here two groups or one group? Two groups or one group? Those who see that there are two groups here, see that 
It says, the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. That's the one group. They are those who were beheaded. And then the other group, they say, is and those. The and to them signifies a second group. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. In the first case, they are martyrs throughout the ages. And the martyrs are a depiction of the most faithful. Not that all martyrs are beheaded, but that is one common way of execution, so the apostle uses it. And then the second group would be those who live during the time of the beast, the Antichrist, and who refuse to worship the beast and the Antichrist. That's the way that the two-view system takes it. Or, if one is to take it as one group, the souls of those who had been beheaded, and then description after description of these souls, the and of and those is translated namely. Namely. Or that is. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. So, what he's describing is martyred saints. Martyred saints especially in the last days of the, the age of the earth, the last days of the earth, or those who are the one group throughout history. But how should we take it here? I think that to take verse 4 to mean that we're only describing martyred or faithfully, um, faithful Christians who gave up their life even to death, I think that that is too restrictive of this passage. I think that if we are to take these as describing one group, it has to be the whole of Christians, the whole of faithful Christians. And the best of us, or those who are the most dedicated of us in terms of giving up our life, are described here because that is the model. That is the, the best that we could do is to give up our life for Christ, to be martyred for Christ. So in terms of representations and symbol, he describes martyred people in order to show that this is the way Christians ought to live and that we all are in this group together. We are all in this group. Whether or not we actually give up our life, he is describing us representatively as martyrs. And why do we need to take this as all Christians throughout the ages, except in the millennium? Why do we have to take this as all Christians? Because it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They come to life and reign with Christ uh, for a thousand years. And verse 6 says, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. In chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it described our redemption and also the fact that we are priests to God and we will reign with Him on the earth. We will reign with Him on the earth. If chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 describes all of us, it seems that the same terminology is here in chapter 20, verse 4, so that He's describing all Christians up to that point who are raised from the dead, come to life, and then reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's the way we'll take it. Now, at the end of verse 4, 
it says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Here, there are two interpretations. One is the literal and physical resurrection. They came to life. And it is natural to take it that way. It's natural to take it that way because we do believe in a day of resurrection. The scriptures teach that. So if the book of Revelation is going to describe it, when would it naturally describe it? It would have to describe it at this point because we know that we will have glorified, resurrected bodies forever. So that's one. According to the context, we would expect it. But also, verse 5, to expect physical resurrection is natural because it says in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. They come to life at the end of the thousand years. And then what do we have? We have at the end of the chapter, verses 11 to 15, the final judgment, and then people are thrown into the lake of fire or they are recorded in the book of life. There are two outcomes, two destinies of the righteous and the wicked. So it's natural in this context to take this physically. We might also note that in chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 8, this same verb is used, to come to life is used of Christ and his own resurrection. Revelation 2 verse 8, Jesus says, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. We know that that's an obvious reference to Christ, who is the first and the last. Christ was dead bodily, and he did rise bodily. He did rise and live bodily. And so it would be natural for us to take it physically in chapter 20, verse 4. However, an alternate viewpoint is to say that they came to life means that they became born again. They were, they were made new creatures or spiritually reborn. Spiritual life came to them. And those who have spiritual life reign with Christ for the whole millennium. Now, that would be the post-millennial view, and that would be the amillennial view, that they both prefer to take, some amillennialists prefer to take it like this, that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years means all who are regenerated and come to life in Christ are born again throughout history between the first and second comings of Christ. That's who's described in verse 4. Then, those same proponents will say that verse 5 is a physical resurrection at the end of time. Verse 5, they say, is a physical resurrection at the end of time. However, it seems better to take it as physical resurrection in verse 4 and physical resurrection in verse 5. So if verse 4 is physical resurrection of all the saints until the the thousand years starts. Then verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. The rest of the dead did not come to life. That is, the resurrection of the wicked does not take place until the end of the thousand years. Then the apostle says, verse 5, This is the first resurrection. Now when he says this, he's referring to the end of verse 4. 
He's referring to the end of verse 4 because he further explains the end of verse 4 in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The first resurrection encompasses those who are blessed and holy, and they do not experience the second death. There is no second death for them. The second death, according to chapter 20 and verse 14, it says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. The first death is now, but the second death is later and is eternal. The first death is temporary. The second death is forever. And that's what he's talking about here. If we are a part of the first resurrection, that is, we rise from the dead upon the return of Christ and before the millennium, we are the ones who will not experience the lake of fire because we've been redeemed. And we have risen from the dead in a resurrected body. And not only that, but the promise of God is fulfilled, which says that they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. The promises of God are fulfilled in this, in some measure, in this. For it says in chapter 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, that is a song of redemption. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you are slain and you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. They will reign upon the earth. And that reign starts in the millennium. And it will continue throughout all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We might also note, contrary to the dispensational premillennial view that says that the millennium is only for Israel to enjoy, redeemed Israel to enjoy, chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 express that this redemption is for the men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, which means also Gentiles. And Gentiles also will reign upon the earth, will reign upon the earth, both in the millennium, but also for all eternity with the believing Jews. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles on the earth for a thousand years and then forever. Now, verses 7 to 10. We have the judgment of Satan. Satan is judged and punished. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. We have to recognize in verse 7 that God is still in control. He bound him for a thousand years, and by the power of this angel that God has given, he is released from his prison. He doesn't escape. The text doesn't say he escaped. It says he will be released from his prison because God, by mediation of the angel, releases him because God has a purpose to permit Satan, verse 8, to come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. This is his purpose. This is his character, to be a liar, a deceiver, and a murderer. And here he entices 
the nations of the earth, the four corners of the earth. This is a figurative description of the earth, meaning north, south, east, and west, all nations, north, south, east, and west, a figurative description of them. By the way, even today we use figurative descriptions to describe the sunrise and the sunset. We know, we know uh, from astronomy and we know scientifically that there is no actual rise or set in an ultra-literal sense. But we do know metaphorically, figuratively, that it is rising and setting, at least from our perspective. From the view we have that it rises and, and sets. And that's the way the Bible talks. The Bible also speaks of the sun rising and setting. But also, verse 8, the four corners of the earth. We, we, we should not impugn the Bible and accuse it of uh, primitiveness in scientific knowledge by this expression. North, south, east, and west. That's all it means. Nations from around the world. And here, identified as Gog and Magog. Perhaps, John is just describing the leaders of this coalition. Not exclusively Gog and Magog, which Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There too, Ezekiel describes how Gog and Magog will gather themselves against the people of God, and it will be God who miraculously delivers the people of God. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, a time yet future, there will be a great battle that will about to uh, take place, but God will prevent the people of God from being harmed and destroyed, miraculously. Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes that, and they, those chapters do mention Gog and Magog. And so I think John here is not saying all only Gog and Magog. I think he's describing them as the leaders of these nations that have allied themselves. We could call them an axis of evil, an axis of evil against the people of God in the future. To gather them together for the war, and they are innumerable. The innumerable descendants of Abraham are here contrasted with the innumerable descendants, spiritual descendants of Satan. But God has a greater number and a greater power. God will overcome. Because it says in verse 9, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The central place of the millennial reign of Christ is Jerusalem, the beloved city. The saints will encamp there. And notice he uses this phrase, the camp of the saints. This is reminiscent of the wilderness wandering and the camp of Israel. How Israel also was vulnerable to attack. The Amalekites, the Midianites, the Moabites, various nations came and attacked them. But God helped them. God delivered them. That was a precursor to a final and ultimate battle that where God will help his people and deliver them from evil. And how does he do it? Miraculously. Verse 9. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Fire came from heaven and devoured them. God instantly, miraculously, devours them. Just as he devoured Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Elijah devoured the, the group of 50 uh, military men and their captain. Twice in 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, he does so. And in even James and John, the, the two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, 
wanted to do the same in Luke chapter 9, and Jesus prevented them from doing so. They wanted to call on fire from heaven to come and destroy the city of the Samaritans that would not receive them. So God does have this power, and there are instances of it in the Bible. And the people of God recognize it, and they know it, and they trust it, that God can do that and will do that in due time. We also know from 2 Peter 3 that God will ultimately destroy the current heavens and the earth by fire. Intense heat of fire to destroy everything and then he'll recreate it all for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. From chapter 19, we already know that the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 19 and verses 20 to 21. They are thrown into the lake of fire. They are already there. At the end of the millennium, the devil will be thrown there, the great deceiver of old, in the lake of fire and brimstone. Brimstone or sulfur. It gives off a uh, 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 malodorous uh, scent a scent that is very disgusting. Nobody wants to smell it. Nobody wants to be around it. That's what brimstone or sulfur is. So it's going to be fiery, smoky, and smelly. This is the place of, for all eternity for the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. They are tormented day and night forever and ever. We know it's forever and ever because he's describing it this way. He's emphasizing this fact. We already know that he knows how to say thousand years. He said there's something that happens before the thousand years, something during the thousand years, and something after the thousand years. And if he wanted to say this was temporary, he could have said so. But he distinguishes it, contrasts it by saying it's day and night forever and ever. It's eternal. Now, not only is the devil punished, the devil and his angels are they punished, but people will be punished. And there are others who will be saved. Verses 11 and following. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. A great white throne. It's great. It's large, signifying its great authority. It's white, signifying its purity, its holiness, its perfection. What he does, he's going to do correctly and righteously. And he sees one who sits upon the throne. It does not identify who this is. Perhaps it is God the Father, because in the book of Revelation, the one who sits upon the throne is usually God the Father. Or it may be the Son, the Son of God, because Jesus said in John chapter 5 that the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, Paul says that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, having appointed a man and having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So this one may be Christ himself. We also must note that 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether they are good or evil. We'll all be held accountable to Christ. Christ will certainly be the proximate 
judge. He will be the visible and proximate judge on the day of judgment. Whether this is the Father or the Son, the, the basic point is both are involved in judgment. Now it says, Earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, when it says earth and heaven, some commentators think that this is talking about how the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed by fire and then later recreated in chapter 21. Or others think that this is describing the people. The people cannot tolerate the holy presence of God. Therefore, they are fleeing away from His presence. Or the earth could be the people and all who dwell, uh, the, all who dwell on the earth and the earth itself, cannot tolerate the holy presence of God, and then heaven, heaven and those inhabitants of heaven cannot also tolerate the presence of God unless God is merciful to, toward them, even upon the earth. He has to be merciful for anyone to be in His presence. Whatever it signifies, it's clear that it they cannot tolerate. They cannot find a place in the presence of God. The moment God is revealed, people shudder and they scram. They cannot be in His presence unless He is merciful and calls them into His presence. Now, verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. He sees the dead. He sees all the dead. It looks like he sees all the dead because he says the great and the small. Therefore, even though the book of Revelation elsewhere typically says the small and the great, here it says the great and the small, probably to highlight the fact that even great people who think they are great and even are greater than others on the earth are nothing before God and have to stand before His judgment seat. Yes, governors... Kings, presidents, dictators, whoever they may be, they all have to stand before the presence of God on the day of judgment. And they will not be able to tolerate it. They will not tolerate it. Now, it says, books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. When it says the books were opened, this is the book of deeds. And it appears, since the book of life is a different book, these books that were first opened, in order to judge the wicked, these books that are open in order to judge the wicked, are judging them according to their deeds. Because it says, in, at the end of verse 12, that they were judged according to the things which are written in the books, according to their deeds. Yes, it is the deeds of the people that manifest who they are. It's the deeds of the people that show forth whether they have true faith or not. It's not that the deeds save them, but it is the deeds that show that they have salvation or that they don't have salvation. God is a God of evidence. He's the judge, and therefore He looks at tangible, real evidence, not for His sake, but to show to us that He's objective. He's fair. He is judicial in all that He does. For example, it says in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, 
But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to, of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. This is the judgment, the day of judgment. All deeds will be manifested and the wicked will indeed be here, even if they are great people, whether great or small. They'll be judged. But also, the book of life will be opened. The book of life is the book of life that records all the names of God's chosen ones, all the names of His elect, all the ones who will never be blotted out or erased from that book because it is fixed, it is sealed, it is permanent. What God ordains before the foundation of the world According to Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, he's re already recorded this before the foundation of the world. It will take place in the world and last forever and ever. The book of life for all who are redeemed. That's why this judgment vision here in verses 11 and 15 includes a judgment of the righteous and the wicked. A judgment of the sheep and the goats. Verse 13, it will be a comprehensive judgment. Verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The sea. Many people have perished at sea. Many people. But God has not lost track of them. He will bring them back to life in a resurrected body, and then they will be judged. Also it says, Death will give up the dead which were in them. Death. Death means those who are dead on land who died on land. However they died, wherever they are, wherever they perished, whatever nation, God will bring them up from the dead. And then it says, And Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Hades. Hades is equivalent to the Old Testament Sheol. This is the underworld, the netherworld, the place where departed spirits went until that day that all of them, as it says in verse 13, are thrown into the lake of fire, into Gehenna or hell for eternal punishment. So Hades too will give up everyone who's there because God will insist. He will command, say the word, and they'll all come out. They all will be judged according to their deeds. There's no escape. In verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They are all thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. All wicked people go there. And it is eternal. We know it's eternal because of chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. Chapter 20, verse 10. And here, chapter 20, verse 14. And also chapter 21, verse 8, that says that all of the wicked people 
their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is the eternal destiny of all the wicked. So, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We, in the book of life, have a different destiny. That will be explained more in chapters 21 and 22. But those who are wicked, those who reject the gospel of Christ, they go to the lake of fire. There's two outcomes. There's the way of light and darkness, the way of righteousness and wickedness, the way of God, and the way of Satan. There's heaven, there's hell, there's eternal life and eternal punishment. It's at this point that we need to explain that though many things here are, are figuratively and metaphorically described, that they do take place in time and space. They will take place in history. There are future events yet to come. That is, there will be a physical return of Christ. There will be a physical resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. There will be an actual day of judgment. And then people will either go to eternal life or to eternal punishment. Let's show that briefly, that these are literal events Elsewhere in the Bible, in passages that speak forthrightly, didactically, literally, plainly, explain these truths. Okay? So that we not take all of this as mythological as unbelievers do. The first one, the literal return of Christ. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus commissions his disciples again. And Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Very clearly, unmistakably, the angel tells them, both angels tell them that Jesus, who was raised from the dead by many convincing proofs, Acts 1 verse 3, he presented himself alive, raised from the dead, after his suffering by many convincing proofs. It's not a mirage. It's not a hallucination. There is no swooning of Jesus in his death. He actually died, and three days later he rose from the dead. And the body that they saw, the body that was there, the body that ate with them, Luke 24, he ate with them, John 21, he ate with them. That body that they saw was the body that was raised up, ascended in their sight. And the angels tell them, there's no point looking up and gazing up into the sky. He's gone. But do a wait. The way that he went up is the way he will come back. He will come back bodily just as he was raised bodily. It's an actual physical return of Christ. We can also see from 2 Thessalonians, Another passage on the return of Christ. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. And verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Here in this passage in this epistle this letter that's plainly written he's saying that Jesus will come back in flaming fire with his mighty angels to retribute all who don't know God who don't obey the gospel and they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction he'll come to punish them and to give relief to us who are persecuted a twofold purpose in his return he writes it plainly straightforwardly that it's an actual event that they should await. Now, that there will be a resurrection, a physical, bodily resurrection. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John 5, 28. There are people who reject and ridicule the miraculous. This is what they say that none of these events are real. It's all mythological. But John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this. Do not marvel. There too, he had his, his skeptics who were incredulous and thought that miracles wouldn't happen. So he has to tell them, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus says, all who are in the tombs will come forth. They will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who did the evil to a resurrection of judgment. There's two resurrections. Everyone will be raised. Some will have a body of life and others will have a body of death, eternal death. Two resurrections. Also, Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 on the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul clearly stated in front of his adversaries. Now, in front of his adversaries, there is no time and no room and no context to present parables and to talk about myths and fiction. That's quite evident. And so in Acts chapter 24, he says, in Acts 24, 24, 14. Actually, let's begin at verse 13, 24, 13. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. His enemies presented false charges. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. In other words, his Jewish enemies could not say 
that he was preaching something contrary to the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. They could not accuse him of that. Now what is it? Verse 15. Having a hope in God, which these men, his enemies, these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That there will certainly be a resurrection, a miraculous rise from the dead of righteous people and wicked people. Paul says, this is the hope of the fathers, the Old Testament fathers. This is what my enemies believe. They believe that the fathers had a hope in resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, and I believe the same thing. So why are they accusing me and bringing me before you, Felix, the governor? Why? It's unnecessary. I, I should be exonerated. So, Paul's speaking in factual terms that this is actually what's going to happen. How about the fact of a day of judgment? The day of judgment. Look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Paul is before the Athenians, these Greeks who, who love to talk about new things, new philosophies, new religions. Acts 17, verse 30, and he preaches this to them. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The fact of Jesus' resurrection is proof that God has appointed Jesus to judge the whole world. There will be a day of judgment. And Paul preached that. He preached it clearly and openly that there would be this day. And we know also from Matthew 25, 31-46 that Jesus preached that there will be a judgment of all the nations. This is known as the sheep and goat judgment. That there would be this day when He returns and He will judge the whole world. And speaking of chapter 25 of Matthew... Let's also now prove that there is eternal life and eternal punishment. There are two eternal destinies, and both are eternal. Both are eternal. Having explained that there will be a day of judgment, Matthew 25, he says in 25:46, the last verse, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is eternal punishment. Revelation calls it the lake of fire, the second death. And here, eternal life. Those whose names are in the book of life are the ones who inherit eternal life. There is eternal punishment and eternal life. Now, skeptics and detractors from this view will say that the punishment is temporary. The pu punishment is temporary. However long they conceive uh, and speculate that temporary punishment is, they say it's temporary punishment because in the end, either all will be saved, all will have eternal life, or some will have eternal life and others of them will just be extinguished completely or annihilated. They will not exist forever and ever. There is some view, one or the other, that people like to uh, perpetuate that is false. But this verse 2546 says it's eternal punishment and eternal life. If the eternal punishment is not eternal, 
then the eternal life cannot be eternal because we have the same Greek and English words in the same verse. In the same verse. If we're going to mitigate eternal punishment and say it's less than eternal, we have to do the same with eternal life. Otherwise, it's an unintelligible statement. It's unintelligible. Okay, and then one more place where we can see that all of this has eternal consequences is in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12. Daniel 12 and verse 2. Daniel 12, 2. He puts a few of these things together in one verse. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Here Daniel clearly says, and even liberal commentators acknowledge that Daniel 12.2 is speaking forthrightly of a day of resurrection. They just don't believe it. They know that the text says it, but they don't believe it. Daniel 12.2, there's two resurrection, two resurrections. There's a res resurrection of everlasting life and another of everlasting disgrace and contempt. Well, there would only be disgrace and contempt if they are judged and punished, held guilty for all of their wicked deeds. That must, that, that must mean that there's a day of judgment. And the fact that there's a resurrection is in this phrase, the dust. They, those who are in the dust of the ground will awake. That's talking about the body that has disintegrated and become dust will reintegrate and be raised immortally, either for eternal life or eternal punishment, a physical body. He's describing all of that here in one verse. So let's take these truths as we ought to take them, not dismiss them, as skeptics do. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.